right. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Thank you, Brian, for your service and so many of you that have served. And as we think about the incredible opportunity, the incredible rights we have, I think it's, there's some, sometimes there's some topics and sometimes there's some issues that aren't really popular with our culture. And uh, I want to go ahead and say right up front, number one, I I know that I'll get misquoted today. Uh, I just kind of accept that as a fact. Uh, I would ask uh, that you check with me uh, before you send out quotes that maybe might be misunderstood sometimes, okay? Uh, and that happens all the time, but particularly today, uh, we got me a little more because if you're not listening carefully, you might misunderstand something, okay? Um, when I think about this message, I was reading an article this week and it said that 52% of Americans today believe that it is morally wrong to use a straw. Now, um, I, I am a proponent of recycling. I think we should be recycling. I think we should be taking care of our earth. I think we're responsible. Uh, and I think that's uh, our responsibility. I also am well aware of what's happening in the oceans, particularly in the Pacific Ocean, where there's being tons of plastic. And it's definitely affecting uh, the, the marine life, our ecological system. So I think we should recycle. I think we do need to be more responsible. But I do find it interesting that 52% of Americans think that this is basically an evil, a moral wrong. Um, but only 46% of Americans would say abortion is morally wrong. Now, I understand this is a loaded topic and I want you to know this is not about politics. Um, this is not about ranting and raving. I just want us to understand the biblical view of life and understanding what is the sanctity of life according to scripture. Uh, in the 20th century, there's a very famous philosopher. I studied him in college and in seminary. His name is Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, if you're like me from a rural area or East Texas or West Texas, maybe you say Sartre. Uh, and sometimes I will slip back to that. But Jean-Paul Sartre was a famous philosopher, writer, thinker, academician. And um, he really is the one who uh, I think encouraged and kind of put words uh, into writing that people could understand. And this philosophy that he had, uh, which is basically he was an atheistic humanist is what he was, um, really took hold in much of Europe and in our Western culture. And he said several things, but this is principally what his philosophy was. Sartre said this. He said, um, there is no absolute right or wrong. There is no right or wrong because there is no God. And because there is no God, there is no purpose in life. There is no design because we all happen uh, by a random chance of events. And he also went out to say, which this is interesting, because there is no God, you, you cannot say something is right or wrong. All things are permissible. He literally said, because there is no God, all things are permissible. 
And you might think, well, I don't know that that's accurate. Well, I think our culture bears it out. I think all cultures bear it out. Uh, It's the antithesis of a biblical worldview. It's the antithesis of Christianity. What Sartre is saying, since there is no God, you are not designed. You are a random set of circumstances that's resulted in a life. So is true for the earth and everything that exists. And because that is true, there you, the individual, get to determine what is right and wrong and what your purpose will be. Because there is no God, you have to recognize all things are permissible. So you can't say, you can't say this is right and it's universally true for everyone. You can't say this is wrong and it's universally true. By what authority do you do that? The authority rests within the man himself. So if that's what you think, then that's what truth is for you. That's, you have to develop your own purpose. And in culture, if the culture, if the leadership, if the culture says something is right, then that's what makes it right. If it doesn't believe it's right, it's not. So if your culture thinks it's okay to lie, to steal, to slander, if your culture thinks it's okay, slavery is okay, if your culture thinks certain people should be marginalized, then that's right for your culture. No one can tell you that's wrong. By what authority could they say that? So you see, this is the Western thought of mankind for the most part. The highest value is this. Whatever I want to do, I ought to be free to do. Whatever I desire, I should be able to to do it. As opposed to scripture, our purpose and our highest authority is God Almighty and his word. And he determines our purpose, which is to know him and be in relationship with him forever and to bring him glory. That's why he's designed us. That's why he's created. That is our purpose. So we either determine a purpose and we'll determine right and wrong ourselves or God has determined it. And we choose not to listen, not to agree, or not just not to believe. Uh, believe it or not, there are atheist churches that exist right here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And you know what? Our men and women uh, who served, and as we talk about Memorial Day, they died for the right for you to choose how you want to worship and if you want to worship. So if you want to go to an atheist church, I was reading the article again last night, and, he's, and the pastor was going, or he's not a pastor, that's not what he comes to. But anyway, uh, he said he actually kind of likes that term. He said, look, we look like a church. We act like a church. We offer youth ministries and children's ministries. We do all that stuff. We just don't have God, just minus God. And we do everything a church does. I, and he said, I think it's a wonderful model. And they have now 600 in that one atheist church, the church of free thought. And guess what? That's his right to do it. It's people's right to go. Uh, Americans died in order for you to have the right to choose. And that's, that's a wonderful choice. But can I tell you that choice, that freedom is not the highest value in life. Most people live by that. But if you're a follower of Christ, we say God Almighty is the highest authority. And our purpose is to know him and to bring him glory. That trumps all of our freedoms and all of our desires. So as we talk about this, I want to mention something. 
and again, I, I want to be sensitive. Uh, number one, uh, I know a lot of people struggle and I know a lot of people have struggled in the past, uh, particularly uh, with abortion. Maybe you've had an abortion. Can I tell you this? The Bible tells us in Romans that now for those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. And where uh, mistakes and sin happen, grace abounds. So you don't have to feel uh, like a second class citizen. You don't have to feel under the oppression or that God's mad at you. God is about the purpose of restoration and redemption. He's the redeeming God. Now, before we get into the sermon, I, I do uh, want to mention, you know, Genesis 1:27 said, and God created in his image, his own image, the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Notice you see that word created three times. He's the creator, he created. In other words, he designed, he purposely made man and woman, male and female. Now I recognize uh, today, uh, there's, uh, there's a real condition called uh, trans, transgender, basically uh, dysphoria is what it is, it's, it's confusion. And really, there are many uh, boys and girls and many women who feel, and I use that word, they feel and they psychologically believe that they are in the wrong body, that they should be the opposite sex. And uh, I understand that. Those are real feelings. But can I say something to you as parents, as grandparents, as those who influence children? Um, I fear, and based on my experience, I fear we're making a grave mistake by allowing and encouraging children to start the process of changing their sexual identity. And let me just tell you two stories real quick. This is out of experience. Uh, one would be a, a gentleman named Walt Heyer, who was one of the first uh, men to go through a sexual reassignment. Matter of fact, he, the, the first doctor ever to do this at Johns Hopkins uh, did the sexual reassignment for him. And uh, Walt said, within a week, I knew I'd made a mistake because nobody told me that the, even though I had been changed biologically on the outside, I wasn't bio, biologically changed on the inside. There were still parts of me that were very male and I was in constant consternation. And Dr. Paul McHugh, who was the head of psychiatry department at the time at Johns Hopkins, uh, they eventually stopped doing it uh, because of their test results that showed that uh, this wasn't the answer, that people were struggling even more with depression and discouragement and suicidal thoughts. He said, I don't know what the answer is, but this is not it. And so another situation, and I'm going to change a little bit of this up because it's confidential, but uh, there's a boy. Um, his name is Bobby, and that's not his real name. Uh, matter of fact, I'm completely rearranging the story, but he uh, felt like he was a girl. Uh, and he began to talk to his parents about this. And when he was 13, they said, well, let's just transition you. So he began to take uh, medication. He began to go through some things to change his sexuality. Um, he changed his clothes, changed his name. And uh, they decided to come out with it, uh, to make that public, uh, make it public at school, make it public at home, make it public everywhere. Had a big party. 
And that was all great for a while, for about six months, when Bobby decided, I think I wanna be a boy now again. The problem is they couldn't put it all back in the bottle. And the parents would tell you, we made a big mistake. Hey, it is not highly unusual for boys and girls to go through some sexual identity questions. But psychiatrists, the study shows if you will let them get into adulthood, major, the vast majority of the time, they will come back to their true biological sex. I'm not saying every time, but most of the time is more than accurate. The vast majority of the time. So I want to caution you as parents, as aunts and uncles, as grandparents, as friends, to not let a child and not to encourage a child on something that has permanent ramifications. There's a great book um, that's in my pocket. Um, and this is called Transgender. This is not our sermon today, but I just needed to talk to this as we talk about sanctity of life. And this is written by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. I highly encourage you to pick it up. You can order it uh, online. There'll be some uh, pictures of it. We don't have copies of this book, just this one. I've already given the rest of them away. And you can pick that up. I would highly encourage parents to read it. It takes about 30 minutes and it tells you all the terms, helps you understand it. And this is not by uh, some uh, flaming Southern Baptist hellfire and brimstone preacher. Uh, again, I ask you to listen to me very carefully. This is by a, a, a guy who's a Christian who's seeking to live for Christ, but deals with same sex attraction. It's a very real part of his life. So he is highly sympathetic. Uh, so I encourage you to pick this up. And I think it's very well-written, uh, very unbiased and uh, very accurate. I think it's great information to have and great information to share. Now, uh, we're going to look at scripture because at the end of the day, I've said this before and I don't, I'm not trying to necessarily be funny, but it, it really doesn't matter ultimately what I say. I know what it matters to some of you um, until you don't like what I say, but um, it really doesn't matter what I say. It really, it's what God says. That's what we base as followers of, of Christ. That's what, so it's not about what we feel. It's not about what somebody told me. It's not uh, about what I've heard, but what does the word of God tell us as we look at the creation and the creator? And what we're going to see here in just a moment are a couple of things. Uh, number one, we're going to see that God knows us. We're going to see that the scripture sees that God sees where we are. And the scripture also teaches us God created us. God knows us, God sees us, and he created us. Um, there, there's a term called omni, which means all. And it means all meaning, all presence, all encompassing. And really, these, this is what this would be. It would be that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows all. God is omnipresent. He is present here. He is present with you tomorrow. He's present everywhere. He is all presence and he is omnipotent, which means he is all powerful. As David writes this Psalm, as he cries out to God, as he pins this under what we believe is uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit, he says this, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You are omniscient. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. God, you know what I'm thinking. You know what my true motives are. You know exactly what I really believe. You search out my path, my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Uh, you know my thoughts and you're acquainted with my ways, my behavior. So God sees what others see on the outside, the behaviors, but he also sees on the inside because he's omniscient. Even before word is on, excuse me, you search out my path, my lying down and are acquainted with my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all, omni, all together. And then David says this, you hem me in behind and before me and you lay your hand upon me. You're behind me, you're ahead of me and your hand is upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high, I can't attain it. David's saying, it's overwhelming. This is too much. God, I know you see me and you know my heart and you see, you know what I've done, you know what I will do. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Penin, which literally means face, Hebrew face of God. This word appears in, in, where in a 2000 different times in scripture, uh, sometimes other words are used, but it means the face of God, the presence of God. And it's that picture that you or someone is looking at you face to face, that they see you, they know what you're saying. They understand. And David is saying, um, where can I flee where your face doesn't see me. Where do I go? How do I get away from you? Maybe you felt that way. Jonah certainly felt that way. Go to Nineveh. I'm going this way. <laughs> I'm going the opposite way. I'm, I'm getting out of here. I want to get away from the presence, the hand, the face of God. He said, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth and Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The hand of God for the follower of Christ Jesus is leading. Even when we make mistakes, he's, we're like, he's like a parent's, a parent kind of nudging us back, nudging us back in the right direction. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light with you. David is saying that metaphor darkness, when tragedies come, when sorrow comes, when death comes, and I know many of you, if you're like me, you've lost someone even in the last year. Many of you have lost someone in the last few years. Difficult times, darkness. But the Bible says that his hand is upon us. 
his hand is with us and that the darkness is as light with you. In other words, there is hope. And then we see here, for you formed my inward parts. That's your soul. God designed and formed and created your soul. And you knitted me together in my mother's womb. That's your body. God purposely and intentionally designs you. There's a, there's a great picture. This was picture of the year. There's a baby here uh, in the womb at about 14 weeks. And you see the design. You see the art of a real life. Uh, this was the picture of the year by Time Magazine in the early 70s. And we see scripture, even in David's time, mouthing words that you have knit me, formed me, created me in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is like an artist crafting, designing, and putting together a masterpiece. That's what he's saying. You were intentionally created by God. You were not a mistake. You were in God's thoughts, in his intentions from day one. And he has designed you and created you. Wonderful are your works. And my, snow, my soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden from you, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as you were there was none of them. What is he saying? He's saying, God designed me. He created me. And not only has he designed and created me, he has ordained my days from the beginning to the end. God has chosen and has a plan for the number of days that you will spend upon this earth. He knows the past. He knows the future. And the days were formed for me. He formed those days for you. When as yet, there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. Now David is gone from being kind of freaked out that the face of God sees him to recognizing as I go through these times, you are with me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there are more they are more than the sand and I awake and I am still with you. Remember he was talking about the darkness, a metaphor for death. He says, when I awake, I'm with you. Here's the picture. Even if death overtakes me, I will be with you in the light. Jesus gives a beautiful picture of this in the New Testament in the gospel. It tells a story of a, little girl who had died. She was 12 years old and he came into the room and he took her by the hand. Just as scripture talks about, God takes her hand 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our God. He took that little girl by the hand and this is what he said to her. An Aramaic expression. Talitha kume. Talitha kume. You know what it means? Little girl. Arise. Awaken. You see, when that little girl passed away, it was as if she had just woken up from a nap. It was the morning like some of you this morning went to your child and said, Johnny, Susie, time to get up. There's the picture of what God does for his children. For those of you who've had loved ones go on before you. I'm not advocating soul sleep, but I'm telling you what they feel like is they passed away, they died. And for those that know Christ Jesus, they've awakened in the light to the most glorious life they could have ever imagined. For the most wonderful, all-consuming, all-wonderful life that they ever could have imagined because that is where God himself is. That's where Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who's been holding us by the hand, has now awakened us. And that's why we know that there is hope, that there is a redeeming God, even in the darkness of night, even in the darkness of tragedy, there is a God who's holding our hand and taking us through the process, leading us to the ultimate light. When one day he will say, awaken, time to get up. And I love that. I love that promise of scripture that he will redeem all the heartache, all the tragedy, all the suffering that we've had for his glory. One day when he says, awaken. What about you? Have you awakened to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? There are some Bible principles that I think it are, that are important for us to recognize as we think about this message, as we think about this passage of scripture. And there are things that we need to remember. They are hallmark principles for us to live by. Number one, God created and designed us intentionally, intentionally, purposefully. And we were created for his purpose. God is the authority that supersedes all human desires. There are a lot of things that we want. There's a lot of things we desire. And just as children, our kids always want them, but do we give them all of them? Do we allow them to participate in all of them? No, we think about their future and what will be best and what do we need to do to not only protect, but to help them grow. Sin is real and has wreaked havoc on all of creation, all of the death, all of the disease, all of the tragedies that maladies that we endure today are a direct result of the fall of man. When mankind took Sartre's position, Sartre's position and said, I will choose. I know God has said, don't eat of the street, but I will be God. I will make my decision. I want my freedom. I want my choice to be the most important thing in the world. And so they did. And sin entered into the equation 
and we're all impacted by it. We're all impacted by other people's sin and by other people's fault as well as our own. But what happens in this life matters in the next life. In other words, how we live in this life, how we live as believers in Christ Jesus impacts the joy and the degree that we will experience it in the next life. Oh, it's wonderful for everyone that knows Christ Jesus. But how much more to know that we've lived a life God-honoring, we've done as much as we can. We've looked, we've shared him, we've demonstrated him. We have stood for those who cannot stand for themselves. We have spoken for those who cannot speak. Because Jesus said, if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Jesus said, if you cause, if you cause a little one, if you cause a child or someone who's naive to stray and to walk away from him, if you cause harm to them, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be cast in the bottom of the sea. Those are pretty strong words that tell me it's important that we recognize what life is about and who we live for. So the question is, who are you living for today? What is your greatest value in life? Is it Christ and knowing him? Or is it, I ought to be able to do whatever I want. That's where the war is. That's where the decision must be made. Choose you this day, who will you serve? And you get to make that choice today. So do I, every day. So that's why I think it's important that we stand for life. As the scripture talks about our days, in the beginning and in the end, God has ordained. Hey, I understand this. For you ladies who've been through this process, I know it was incredibly difficult. And we now know statistics tell us that most women don't make this decision on their own. Most women say that I was strongly encouraged or told by a parent or a family member, a boyfriend or a husband. So it's not really a true statement to say this is about women's choice in, in most occasions. And sometimes it is. Also, in my experience as a pastor, and I've talked 30 to 40 women uh, that have been through this process, and even some men, I've never met somebody who said, you know, if I had to do it over again, I'd do it again. I'd go through the same process. Never met anybody like that. Matter of fact, again, statistics say uh, that most women say they would not go through the abortion process again if given the opportunity. So I say that so that we don't find ourselves believing that there are little or no consequences, that this is the easy way out. You say, well, what, what about bringing a child into the world that people don't want, that's unwanted? Can I tell you, in the United States, that's not gonna be true if you choose adoption. Right now, there are over 2 million couples who want to adopt a child. 2 million in waiting. We have them right here in our church. Couples that are waiting and that would desperately like a child. But the problem is, for today, because of those 2 million, it only equates to 1 in 36 actually being able to adopt a baby. 
So as difficult and hard and as terrible as it might be, um, I would encourage you to choose life. Jesus encourages you to choose life. And that life can be loved. I talked to a, a gentleman yesterday who said, you know, I remember my mom had to make that choice and I'm so glad she chose me. And she raised me as a, uh, as a single mom. Same thing was true for my roommate from college. But I'm so glad that she made the choice. And as hard as it was, she certainly doesn't regret it today. And matter of fact, she had me adopted out. And I'm here today because she chose that and she chose because she couldn't take care of me to lovingly give me to another family who desperately wanted me. And that's why I'm standing here before you today. A lady told me the same story as she was walking out. She said, I'm 73. And I'm so glad my mom made that decision. Um, I want to show you, as a matter of fact, this family was here last hour. Uh, this is Asher Grubaugh. And Asher was sitting right over here uh, on the second row in the earlier service. And um, Matt, his mom, Jennifer, uh, about three years ago, uh, they found out they were pregnant and they found out that Asher had a host of genetic issues and that it didn't look good. And so they were encouraged and advised to abort. Look, we don't know that this baby is probably not gonna live. And even if it survives the birth, <clears throat> it'll have a host of issues and you have no idea how hard this is gonna be. So we, our advice, our encouragement would be that, that you strongly consider abortion. But you know what? Jennifer and Matt made the decision that God is the creator and ordainer of life. And if God takes our child, so be it. But we will not purposely go through that process. So they prayed, made their mind up. Asher was born and he had a host of problems. It was hard. But today, as a matter of fact, a year ago, he was right here and we dedicated him to the Lord. And today he's in church because God created, because God ordained his days. And that's the God we serve. Choose you this day, whom will you serve? You are given the choice to choose life or you're given the choice to do what you want. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As followers in Christ Jesus, we trust him as our creator, our designer, our sustainer, and our ordainer. Do you know him? I, choose, I encourage you to choose him today. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, I pray for the men and women who have been touched and impacted by abortion. God, I, I pray for those, Lord, who maybe deal with some guilt. Lord, that you would let them know that when you forgive, you cast it away as far as the east is from the west. That, Lord, you will even redeem situations of this nature. God, I pray for those who find themselves in the future with a voice, with someone who has a, a, a child, a life inside and they're trying to determine what they do, Lord, that they would lovingly encourage them to take a step toward life, take a step and to consider adoption. And Lord, I pray that as believers in Christ Jesus, we would so love and so let our light shine before men that they may see your goodness, your greatness, 
your design, your creation and glorify you in heaven. If there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them this day. In your name I pray, amen.